Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Arnout Vandermeer, author of Performing Power, Cultural Hegemony, Identity, and Resistance in Colonial Indonesia. Arnout is an assistant professor in history at Colby College. His research explores the importance of material and visual culture, such as dress, architecture, deference rituals, and symbols of power for both the legitimization of colonial authority, as well as its contestation in turn of the 20th century Indonesia. We spoke to Arnaut about how a photographic collection of Dutch colonial officials in Java sparked his interest in researching the topic of his new book, how the use of cultural history has unveiled new insights on the development of Indonesia that have up to this point been missed by other more traditional historical approaches, and how individual acts of rebellion against Dutch colonial power by Indonesians, helped subvert the state from the grassroots up. Hello, Arnaut. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hello, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're very excited about your new book, Performing Power, Cultural Hegemony, Identity, and Resistance in Colonial Indonesia. It's being published by our imprint, Southeast Asia Program Publications. And it's thanks to the Sustainable History Monograph Pilot and the Mellon Foundation, the book is available now for free as an open access ebook. So we encourage our listeners to go to our website, uh, as well as JSTOR, or Project Muse, or, or even Kindle for that matter. You can download the free ebook, um, but it's also going to be available as a paperback in August. Uh, we encourage our listeners to get both. You have the ebook, and then you can also have the, the hard copy, which is great. So tell us, Arnaud, how did this book come about? What's the backstory to this project? That's, you know, and, and, and that's always such an a, a, a intriguing question, because in hindsight, right, you start wondering, where did this project begin? And um, as you know, and a lot of other scholars know, sometimes that's not that clear to you when you set out, right, when, when is the moment that you really embark on a project? But I do think for me, if there is a moment, it actually was in grad school when you're kind of you know, looking for what is going to be your larger dissertation project. And in my case, that meant that I was talking to my academic advisor at the time, Michael Addis, Rutgers University. Um, and he showed me this, this great photographic collection of images in, in colonial Indonesia of Dutch colonial officials um, who are basically surrounded by uh, uh, Javanese status symbols um, who are being honored in Jav- with you know, Javanese etiquette, Javanese deference, traditional deference forms, um, but also pictures of the Dutch living in houses that are clearly inspired by Javanese architecture that are wearing uh, clothing that is very clearly uh, mimicked uh, uh, or that's very clearly clearly mimicking uh, Javanese uh, uh, dress styles. And his questions were very basic and simple, like what is going on here? Um, how do we make sense of these images? And um, more importantly, um, how is power being communicated in the colonial encounter? What, what do these images teach us um, about that? And, and that essentially became my instruction to figure out during the seminar. Uh, and that kind of, you know, propelled me on a, a research trip, uh, both in the literature, but also later on in archives, where I actually discovered that there's there's an incredible story here uh, about all of these forms of, uh, of culture. And more, more importantly, oftentimes it's assumed that um, this kind of um, cultural exchange that we seem to be witnessing here um, kind of happens naturally you know, over time. But what I've discovered is that it's incredibly regulated um, and that it was uh, uh, basically uh, locked into all kinds of regulations and laws and degrees. Um, it was incredibly, incredibly intentional in many ways, specifically by the later 19th century and early 20th century. 
Um, and that's something that I didn't expect to find. I, 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 I expected to, to come with a very nuanced story about how this is about uh, um, sort of sexual relationship developing over centuries between the colonial Dutch and local people and how that uh, uh, explained a lot of this cultural exchange. Um, and you know, a lot of historians have, have gone this route. For instance, Benedict Anderson um, called it a, a cultural osmosis um, because of this. But for me, it was very clear that something more was going on. Intriguingly then, I also found in those same archives that uh, Indonesians themselves also had something to say about all of these forms. Uh, and I noticed that uh, Indonesians too uh, were very intrigued and there were a lot of conversations about things as dress, as status symbols, as deference, uh, as etiquette, uh, architecture. Um, and increasingly that, that led me to, to, to think about, well, maybe, maybe something bigger is going on here. Um, so I think in a way, you know, if you ask me where the project started, it's with those pictures. Um, and that eventually led me to, to the notion of the, the performance of power. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So on the cover, there is a photo. Is that one of the images that, uh, or is that a new one that you found later? Um, that, that is one of those, those images. Yeah. It's, it's part of a, a photographic, a published photographic collection. Um, and, but it's a, it's a, so it's a familiar photo to, to probably a lot of people in the field. Um, but it's a, it's a great picture of a Dutch civil servant um, in, in, in 1904, and, and that actually matters. Um, uh, but because in 1904, we, we see a, a Dutch civil servant in his uniform, and he is being accompanied by um, his servant, a, a Javanese servant who is wearing a traditional dress, but he who is barefooted, right? So he doesn't wear shoes, again, a, a different an indicator of their different social status. And he's basically carrying a, a ceremonial parasol or a payung as, as it's called. Uh, and uh, the, the color of the payung is gold, which is the highest ranking payung in um, colonial Indonesia. Um, but the payung is a status symbol that comes from Japanese society and from Japanese culture. Um, so here we have a Dutch official who is um, presenting himself as the highest authority in the land, so to speak, um, or in this case, in his residency um, by basically embracing the payung. But what is so intriguing about this picture is that there's a, a great sense of nostalgia to it because it's precisely in 1904 that the colonial government actually prohibits uh, usage of the payung by European civil servants. Um, so my, my best guess is that this picture is taken right before or right after this particular announcement and uh, this particular civil servant tries to savior the memory of the good old times when he was still able to carry the payung with him. Wow, wow, that's amazing, that's amazing. The book focuses on small elements that the Dutch colonial gentlemen probably couldn't see, um, but that there, there are points of uh, protest, small points of protest. Is there anything visible within the photo that you see within this? Or that's probably pretty difficult it, with it being staged and everything. Yeah, in, in this particular case, there's yeah, it, it's harder because it is a fair much a stage photograph, uh, definitely taken in a, in a photo studio. Um, so, but but there's other images that I have in the book, um, uh, you know, political cartoons, for instance, that that are a, a good indicator. But also a lot of you know sources from um, from the text where we have a lot of examples of how people basically also used culture to subvert colonial power, um, mm -hmm. and that's where for me the, the, the so. Basically, these larger stories for me, they all come together in this concept of what I, what I call the performance of power, which is essentially, uh, I'm looking at the numerous ways in which colonial power is both legitimized, uh, communicated, but also negotiated and contested um, in everyday forms of encounter. Um, and, and what sets this apart, I think, of other studies is that other studies have focused uh, oftentimes on more outright political movements. Um, and as a consequence, 
um, the FRDA is not necessarily the focus of these studies as um, uh, another uh, historian, Jan Greman has, off has offered. He suggested that, well, one way of thinking about, about this often is that um, by our focus on political movements, essentially we get the illusion that in between moments of outright political, um, basically revolt, um, colonial, there's colonial acquiescence uh, to the colonial okay. circumstance. Um, and my point is that's absolutely not true. Uh, in fact, uh, one way of thinking about the performance of power is by studying colonial society um, from a cultural lens and looking at it as a continuous cultural struggle. So within culture, we can find a continuous struggle between the colonizer who are trying to legitimize their authority through dress or through language or through status symbols and the, and the like, um, but as well um, at looking at how the colonized are using those same means to subvert colonial power and authority. And, and that's essentially what I tried to trace for the 19th century and for the last four decades of, or the first four decades of the 20th century. Oh, that's great. That's great. So what, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, there, there's a, a traditional theater state approach to looking at power, but you're looking at culture. And so what, what are some examples that, that uh, bubble up from your book that are the most memorable for you uh, of some of these cultural ways of protesting the Dutch? So there's there's one example, and and uh, I, I don't know. There are people who know me. They're 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 uh, uh, they've they've heard me talk about this person for so many years and so many times. So they'll be uh, uh, they'll recognize it immediately. So what is so intriguing? I found in the in the colonial archives, and in a way that actually began my uh, uh, basically that really marked, I guess, the beginning of this project in my mind. I found the um, incredibly detailed encounter of a young Javanese prosecutor. Um, and he was uh, um, of, of aristocratic descent, so Priyai descent. Um, he had been Western educated in one of the premier schools in Batavia, um, present day Jakarta. And um, he was basically off on a, a really good career. However, in uh, early uh, 1913, he was transferred to a different location and he was transferred to a city called Purvakarta. And Purvakarta at the time was a provincial town, much more conservative where colonial officialdom was also much more conservative. And, Basically, these documents describe how on the first day of his, basically of his work, of his new job, his new position, uh, he has to uh, meet his European supervisor. Um, and he is wearing European clothes uh, and he arrives and he meets his European superior, who he addresses in Dutch. Um, and uh, his European superior immediately feels that something is wrong. He immediately uh, reacts against the, basically this incursion of this modern Javanese appearance. Um, and he demands that Sumersono addresses him in um, uh, in Javanese, um, according to the Javanese language hierarchy. He also uh, demands that Sumersono goes home, gets changed to wear traditional Javanese dress. And uh, on top of all that, he instructs him then to sit on the floor as a proper Javanese would, rather than on a chair as a European would. Um, Sumersono refuses uh, actually to comply because he feels that given all his education, his experiences with more progressive Europeans, that he has every right to wear whatever clothes he wants, that he has every right, and he's fluent in Dutch, that he can talk to this colonial official in Dutch and that he can sit on a chair uh, as he is also accustomed to doing. And uh, as a consequence, we have this, this incredible uh, encounter where we can clearly see, um, at least in the mind of the colonial official, the what I call sort of the, the, the script, the hegemonic script, like how they imagine the colonial encounter. Um, and we can also see very clearly how Sumersono in this case um, subverts these expectations by changing his appearance, by speaking a different language and by changing his attitude. Um, in this particular case, this uh, is an incredibly important part of chapter three in my book where 
uh, it shows how Sumersono's actions actually um, um, spill out into um, you know, much larger consequences um, in, in, the, in that particular year, 1913. But this is, I think, one, one a really detailed example um, of, of numerous encounters that I, that I um, have in the book. Wow, I just emotionally I can feel there's a there's a desire for equality, and the, and the, the the Dutch colonizer is just not going to accept that. Yeah, and and it's it's uh, and it's really intriguing because it's precisely in these kind of everyday encounters that that's how colonialism was experienced for uh, for people in in this particular case Indonesia, um, and on an everyday basis, right? So so my book looks at at case studies like this, which is in the civil servants uh, in the civil service. And, and therefore, of course, also pretty well recorded in the colonial archives. Um, it's much harder to find similar uh, detailed narratives of, let's say, um, people meeting in the street or people meeting in uh, movie theaters, st stores or fairgrounds um, uh, or train stations. Um, I, and I did find quite, quite, quite a few. Um, and they're, they're all throughout the book. I have examples like these and experiences like Sumersonos, um, where, where we see these uh, competing interests and these competing visions clash, um, but also how it becomes very clear how through, again, through dress and language and, and attitude and etiquette, um, both colonizer and colonized are positioning themselves vis-a-vis -vis one another. Interesting. What, what are some other examples? Uh, as you said, the, the one that you just mentioned was in the archives. Um, what are some other examples that, that you found uh, that were recorded or, as you said, um, reflected in, in material visual culture? Yeah, so, so there's, well, there's one that uh, I, um, so there's more kind of, a, I think, an intriguing example that kind of um, illustrates this issue well, too, is uh, the fairgrounds. It's, it plays a big part in, in one of my chapters, chapter six. And the colonial fairgrounds were really intriguing places. Um, during the late colonial era, the Dutch um, basically stimulated the, crea the creation of large fairgrounds uh, in most of their cities. Um, and these were, were a massive success. They drew a lot of visitors. Um, for instance, in Batavia's fairgrounds at its peak drew 500,000 visitors in about two weeks. So it run for only two weeks. Uh, at these fairgrounds, the colonial state would um, uh, offer um, a lot of artisanal displays um, showing how of course, the tutelage of the colonial state uh, was beneficial to local artisanal industries. Uh, it would show traditional um, performances of traditional performing arts, but it would also have, um, actually the majority of the fairgrounds would, would consist of um, stands for modern Western companies. Um, you know, and, and these are companies, you know, a lot of them from the Netherlands, some from Japan, but also from the United States, big uh, companies that we still have with us today that are trying to sell consumer products. Uh, we also have a lot of modern entertainments from movie theaters to uh, uh, jazz performances to modern restaurants. So these are really intriguing places where culture really serves to um, legitimize, but also contest power. And what we see here then is that visitors to these fairs um, use these fairgrounds then also as a way to um, experiment with their identity and also to challenge colonial hierarchies. So for instance, in 1907, at Surabaya's fair, um, I read in a, a European weekly um, the frustration of a European journalist who basically was, was angry with what he called the modernized Javanese. And he ridiculed, because that's the initial response of the Dutch is to ridicule this. So he ridiculed the Javanese who were wearing strange hats and a striped tie, a, a, a basically a chain watch, a dress shirt, um, perhaps a black jacket, but also at the same time, a traditional saddle. And they, they kind of ridiculed this as a way of um, almost disarming the attempt. Um, but what we see here is really the emergence of experiments with 
uh, appearance to become modern, also to support colonial power. Um, because by the late 1920s and 1930s, the modernized Javanese has become omnipresent at these fairgrounds. So what I describe in that chapter is precisely how we go from that moment in 1907 when the Dutch are completely taken aback by this particular occurrence to the late 1920s where the, the modernized Javanese is, is everywhere. And there's this one great example in that chapter of how a Dutch woman, there's a, a, a wooden submarine um, and a passer gambier, the, Jav the Jakarta fair. And uh, he, she wants to uh, basically lift up her son so that her son can look through the periscope. And at that particular moment, a, a Javanese man um, addresses her in Dutch. He's fully dressed in, in European clothes and he dresses her in Dutch. Um, and uh, uh, basically he, he says, well, you know, uh, uh, do you need a hand? But she says, no, no, it's fine. Uh, she cleans uh, the periscope with the handkerchief and the Javanese man says, oh, that's very smart. Uh, and that's very hygienic. Um, and the European woman is kind of uh, amazed by this because in her diary, she wrote down, well, it almost looked, they, they treated me and they almost spoke to me as if they were my equals. And, and she was really um, 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 kind of taken aback by this. She was surprised by this. Uh, that was not how the Javanese or Indonesians behaved a few decades earlier. Um, so I think uh, it, it really shows how the fairgrounds are this great kind of prism where we can look at the performance of colonial power in an intriguing way. Wow, wow. It makes me angry hearing these some of these stories because you just see this inequality and this assumption that you know how dare they dress like a European? Yeah. Or how dare they dress? You know, or the, have the pocket watch? Or they're 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 trying to copy us, and yeah. we yeah. have the power, and they shouldn't. And and any type of uh, emulation of us is is a threat. Um, yeah. No, it's it's well, it's really fascinating, and then also how it develops. And I I you know I haven't even gotten to, to that particular part, but what happens is of course. Initially in the 19th century, the Dutch kind of behaved like Javanese lords, like Javanese aristocrats. Mm -hmm. But then around 1913, that starts to shift. And then suddenly they go all in on their own modernity. So they want to contrast their own modernity with that of the Indonesians. And um, so every Indonesian who starts to dress, let's say, as a European is suddenly a threat um, and, and therefore needs to be ridiculed, right? Because you want to put that down and you want to kind of present yourself as ever more modern, which essentially is the essence of the civilizing mission discourse. It's this notion of, uh, we, we are the superior civilization. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna bring you along, right? Um, but of course the racist element in the civilizing mission also means that the Dutch never truly believe that Indonesians can become as advanced as they are. Um, and it's that paradox, of course, that is very palpable in all of these uh, encounters. Um, and that's, um, that's, that's, I think, what, what makes this project so fascinating to me. Um, but also, I think the parallels sometimes with other moments in time are really intriguing, too. Um, not just in, in sort of the history of colonial societies, but I think, yeah, you can, um, you can look at, you can use the same framework to look at more contemporary societies as well. No, oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, a, a, it, it, was a, it was a fun project to do. Also, it, it pretty complex because you have to find all of these individual examples and nuggets and then tie them together um, in a way that makes sense. And I think that was the hardest part. That was the hardest part of the project. Sounds like it. What's next on the uh, next project that you're on? So there's some some loose some loose change, as they say, right, from, from this project. So so there's an, a short article. Actually, I, so at Cornell, I don't know, maybe you, you because, you know, of course, uh, there was a, a big conference on tea two years ago. Um, okay. And I gave, uh, I was one of the speakers there and I gave a talk on tea in Indonesia. So I have an article on tea uh, in Indonesia where I basically also talk about how tea 
basically emerges as this colonial drink, but it becomes a patriotic drink. And I, I describe that process of how tea then becomes uh, or is appropriated by Indonesian nationalists. Say, you know what, we're gonna not, not accept that the Dutch control this because it's grown in Indonesian soil. It's uh, grown with Indonesian labor. This is ours now. Oh, um, so I'm describing that process of how do we move from seeing it simply as a, a colonial product to a, that's one. And the other has to do with mountain uh, resorts in Indonesia and um, how essentially the Dutch basically mountain resorts created modern basically more modern tourist destinations and and just raising a question of what is that problematic or or um what does it mean that tourists today go to the same destinations that the colonial dutch selected a hundred years ago um, and in many cases they selected those specific locations because it actually emphasized and helped legitimize their colonial power mm. um, and their colonial rhetoric so what does it mean that we as modern day tourists actually are following those same footsteps we're reinforcing that yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the bigger project that comes after this is, is probably, uh, so it goes back to the fairgrounds, um, because I was so intrigued by the fairgrounds for this project. And I discovered that um, in the Philippines, something very similar was going on. And there it was called the Manila Carnival. And in um, French Indochina, something similar was going on, where it was called the Foire de Hanoi. And I also connected, I also found various connections between these events too. So, um, you know, performers that, that would travel through um, Southeast Asia to visit all these events, for instance. So I think the, the next project is going to be on these fairs, kind of as a vehicle, both of, so very much uh, in the same vein, looking at culture, looking at these as places of encounter, but I think also making a larger, larger argument about globalization um, and consumerism. You know, I, I often talk to my students about this and, you know, all of these things, if you understand colonial societies from, from you know, late 19th, early 20th century, um, it really does help you understand um, societies today, right? You really need to, you really need to kind of study these to, to understand what is going on today. What are we talking here about the United States? Um, clearly, it has a very different colonial history, but also a very problematic one. But a lot of these narratives and discourses are very similar. Um, and and then it's interesting to, to, you know, you can apply it to, to, you know, African countries, Asian countries, also European countries. It's it's really, um, yeah, I think really key to understanding our modern world. Yeah, I think it's brilliant tying in with globalization. Those fairs, we see the the ramifications of those now with all the advertising, all the social media, all the consumerism that's everywhere in the world now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and that's it's so deliberate. That's the other thing, right? It's that, and I think that's the other part about my book that I found so interesting. It's all of these things are deliberate. Um, Right? We, we didn't just become consumers, right? We were made to be consumers. Yes. Right? And it's, it's presented to us as a choice, but it's not. No, no. And yeah. even, even the history within the, within the United States of right after World War II, the advertisers saying, hey, we can create this whole system based on advertising. And the, the old way was you have one item that you purchase and you, you fix it and repair yeah. it. And and hold on to it as long as you can. Be, be very frugal. And we got. They had to change the culture to say no. Disposable. Get the new thing. Then improve thing. That's all just within 60, 70 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's it's. I don't know. That's why. Well, you know, this is why history is so amazing because you yeah, yeah, yeah. Do these things and uh, 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 and it's also why I think cultural history is so amazing because it it it, it approaches these kinds of questions from a different angle. Um, so rather than yeah, looking at politics or economics, right, we, we are asking this question more from, from the cultural realm, but also I feel more from the, the perspective of the consumer, the perspective of, yeah, I, th I think that's, that makes this really fascinating. 
and it's more relatable as I'm just speaking for myself, yeah. you know, I, I can relate as a, you know, a consumer or someone who has experienced uh, this type of cultural conditioning uh, versus the big theater, the big politicians, the, yeah. the, the, what the governments are doing. Um, it's, it's more accessible to the, yeah. the average reader because um, yeah. it's relatable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, a, that's actually a great point about my, yeah. I'm going to use that for my own book. <laughs> well, because that's what you were saying. Like it's it's like when you when you read through. Like I had the same with with when I read first about Sumersono, and there was like dozens of pages, and you read through his words about how he experienced that particular moment, and and then it, that's what it is, right? It is relatable because you can feel that anxiety, and you can feel yeah. that 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 uncomfortable moment, um, and. And I feel it without actually knowing how it must have felt in a colonial relationship where the power dynamic is so unequal. Um, so it must have taken him incredible courage to actually, because he stands up to his boss. Um, he, he doesn't show up for work for two months. Um, he, he continues work, other part of his, his work as a, a public prosecutor um, with a judge who is much more lenient. Um, and he only comes back later on when the governor general himself has intervened and uh, basically scolded the European official for, for, um, for his behavior. Um, and and it sets him. In, yeah. Good for him. Yeah. And it sets in, in motion a whole series of offense, which eventually sees Sumersono uh, transferred um, by, by, you know, a few months later to another station. Um, but it also means that the governor general um, has basically uh, uh, put out a new circular um, that decrees that all um, European civil servants need to behave uh, with great respect to uh, Indonesians, that they can no longer demand traditional deference, um, um, and that if they will, that they will have to face the consequences from his office. Um, and most importantly, that document, that circular, is picked up by the vernacular press, by the Indonesian press, and they publish it in Malay as well. Um, and then it's being used as this document, you know, at political rallies, but also um, it is read at just just you know local town halls. And there, people are all reading that document, saying civil servants are there to serve the people, not to rule the people. Um, and it becomes this this powerful moment. So out of that one small encounter, something really big emerges, and that's what what, what of course I talk about in the book. Um, but it becomes a really empowering moment. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful example yeah. of civil disobedience. It's it's a Rosa Parks moment for yes, yeah. yeah, one person's action affects the whole group. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and 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 so far, this person has been unknown um, because our focus has always been on political parties and on political movements. And while he is involved in some of those political parties and movements, um, in many ways, his actions led to this particular circular. And that particular circular, I argue, is, is so important in. Um, uh, seeing this, and, and the circular is announced in August 1913, and in September and October 1913, the newspapers in Indonesia are suddenly full uh, with, with with small messages of like teachers in uh, uh, Jakarta are changing their sarong for trousers, and uh, railroad personnel in Bandung are changing their sarong for trousers. And because one of the things that they figured out is if we're wearing trousers, we cannot be asked to sit on the ground anymore. Um, so in 1913, in reaction to the circular. Um, a lot of young Indonesians immediately begin wearing trousers of signaling their newfound, basically, self-confidence, of signaling their desire for respect and to be treated with equality. Um, and they do so uh, uh, en masse, which is, it's 19, like late 1913, the newspapers are filled with messages like this. Um, and nobody has picked up on it. Wow. 
that's so yeah. powerful. So powerful. Yeah. And, 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 and in plain sight, you, you're reading this in newspapers, but it's amazing. You know, you're the first historian to pick up on this, you know, look, look at what's going on versus, you know, versus let's looking at these officials in the government. It's well, and the, the timing is, is so key, right? Because it's so tied to what happens with Supersono. Um, and, and the timing explains then this particular changing in dress. Um, and, in, 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 and basically in reaction to this, a lot of the Dutch who were still wearing, at least at home, um, dress akin to Javanese clothes, suddenly were now forced to Europeanize themselves. Um, to keep that contrast between colonized and colonized. Um, wow. The moment the colonized start wearing European clothes, Europeans cannot keep wearing Javanese clothes. Um, so they have to stop. And I think this is great because it shows power. Uh, it shows that the colonial relationship is not just about power from the colonizer. Here it's the colonized who have power. They are forcing change um, yeah. in a cultural way, not a political way. And I think that's, uh, yeah, th that's- From the bottom up to grassroots. From the bottom up, yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's great. That's great. Wow, we're so we're so I'm honored that we're publishing your book. This is cutting out stuff. I hope uh, so. I hope so. Yeah. It is. It is. That's fantastic. Well, again, uh, so good talking with you and congratulations on your new Thank book, you. yeah. Power, Cultural Hegemony, Identity and Resistance in Colonial Indonesia. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you, Arnaud. Yeah, the pleasure was all mine, really. This is was uh, this was a, a lot of fun. And um, yeah. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. That was Arnout Vandermeer, author of Performing Power, Cultural Hegemony, Identity and Resistance in Colonial Indonesia. If you'd like to read his new book, you can download the free open access ebook on our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu. You can also use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on the paperback. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnounce for the paperback and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>